So hey guys, we, uh, this is uh, Chris Ronan and Mario. We've uh, we're Break the Gate podcast. We got Randy Nichols of Force Media Management, uh, managing artists such as Aaron Glepsey, Underrose, Starting Line, and uh, all really good bands. Uh, Randy, thank you for coming on for this this podcast. Nice. Thanks for having me. Stoked to hang out and chat. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your history in the industry, where you kind of started, you know, how you got started. Yeah, sure. So I've been doing this since ancient times. I've I've been in the business pre-email and almost before cell phone. So like... (laughs) I've, I've, I've seen a major transition over the years for like how I entered the business versus people will today probably, but started um, in college on a college concert committee, booking bands to play at my, at my college, moved from that to interning at um, a radio station, at a record company, at a um, management company and a whole slew of different areas. As I was getting close to the end of college, I realized, okay, one of the last things I haven't done is work at a booking agency. And this is pretty much pre-real internet. So I was looking in these books, like a stack called um, like Polestar like Guide. Mm-hmm. And I looked in the booking agency guide because I was like, all right, I haven't done a booking agency yet. So I'm like, let me get an internship at an agency. And my goal was to get an internship at an agency that had bands that were going to blow up really fast and would need to hire from within. And somehow my crazy theory worked perfectly, went to like a smaller to mid-sized agency who had a bunch of bands that were about to pop. And through that, I got hired as an assistant right when I finished school, I took my last final and went to work in the afternoon, which became a full-time job. And within a year and a half, actually probably within a year, I was an agent. Mm. So it just kind of, it moved forward really quickly. And through that, I was at an agent for a couple of years. The agency kind of collapsed that I was at due to its own success. It's probably the best way to put it. You know, the leader of the company was an amazing person, was more of an agent and really great at representing talent versus managing growth and overhead and some of those things. And the company collapsed. And I went to a record label. I was working at Wind Up Records for a short time doing tour marketing, which kind of made that segue from being an agent for every band at wind up records at the time that was not Creed was basically Creed was exploding and I got to work on everything but Creed. (laughs) Then late in my, like I lasted about a year there towards the end of my time, Creed was coming off the road for an extended period of time and they wanted to change my role to basically help manage Creed's message board. And I was just like, I literally wrote, they gave me a memo explaining the job. I wrote black magic marker. I'm way too qualified for this job. I'm Mm -hmm. offended. (laughs) Put it in my boss's inbox, like a physical inbox, because we didn't really have much email yet. Yeah. And came into work the following day and was walked into the president's office and let go. And um, from there, we're talking like, God, 1999-ish around this point. From there, I went and worked at a startup company in the first like internet.com boom Mm. that um, did advising on artists and music websites in general. And 
was just way, way before their time. It's something that, you know, like now there's like sponsorship and brands and artists and advertising on websites. It's commonplace, but they were probably five years ahead of their time. And that company still did pretty well. I was employee number 13. We made it to you know, almost 500 employees and like four or five offices. And that company imploded in, you know, it was kind of known as the dot-com bust of like, I think it was year 2000 or mm. 2001, somewhere around there, there was the first dot-com dot crash. And um, let's see, what did I do after that? After that, I worked for London Sire Records for a half a second <laughs> as a marketing director. I was hired by the president of the label. He forgot to have the general manager of the label um, approve my hire. She refused <laughs> to recognize that I worked at the company. So she okay. never spoke to me, but she was ultimately who I reported up to. So I made it about 12 weeks there. I got 12 weeks of severance and they sent me on my way. And then I spent the summer, spent the summer searching for a job and couldn't find one. And had like one friend, my friends who own a company called Drive Through Records, were asking mm -hmm. me to start a management company with them. I wasn't sure I wanted to start a management company with a record label. I had mixed feelings about that concept. Mm -hmm. Then 9-11 hit and living in New York, looking for work was just like, it literally wasn't possible. It was a really, really strange time. And I got laid off in July or maybe June. And then you had September 11th. And we got till December and I still couldn't really look for work even. And they were begging me to start a company with them and they were based in LA. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get out of New York for a minute. Partnered up with them and tuck on the starting line, managed them. I was managing the starting line and Finch and working out of the drive through records office in LA. And that kind of began my path as a manager. You know, and I, I left one thing out when the agency I worked for collapsed. One of my one of my artists, who was a ska punk band called the Pilfers, mm -hmm. I tried to drop them and said, "Hey, I'm not an agent anymore." And the lead singer of the band was like this older Jamaican dude who I adore, a guy named Cooley Ranks. He told me in like his thick Jamaican accent, like he's like, you know, basically, all right, if you're not the agent anymore, now you're the manager. Your first job. <laughs> go get an agent. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was basically, I don't even want to imitate his accent. But yeah. It was awesome. And yeah. He, I'm like, I don't know how to be a manager. And he said, yes, you do. And he's like, you're going to be a great manager. And once in a blue moon, we cross paths and he sees me and just like his face lights up with a huge smile. It's like, yeah. I told you so. <laughs> so that, yeah, that kind of began my path into management. Wow. That's a that's an amazing story. Uh, so you started right around like the the post hardcore, it, it, like the segue from like um, mid nineties punk to hardcore. Uh, that would have been yeah, yeah, absolutely. How was that transition? Because I know that like hardcore was so like underground, and then when you started band seeing bands like Under Oath, you know, and the, uh, those kinds of bands, you started to realize like, oh, there's like there's like an actual market here. Uh, you know, that's, there's a transition period from that where people were still not really sure, like that should be mainstream or how was that transition like on the, on the industry side? Yeah. You know, like I'm going to take a step back though, because there were so many transitions. That's fair. Like yeah. when I, when I was an agent, like at first I was an assistant for an age before I became a full fledged agent. I was an assistant for a guy named Tim Bohr who was booking shelter 
orange nine millimeter buzz oven typo negative like mm. that era of like rock and metal and like i guess like orange nine maybe we'd call them post hardcore yeah. or like vision of disorder he was working like all these bands like that was an era but like i was more into the poppier sound mm. so when i was got the opportunity to sign a band i signed a band called weston who were pop a pop punk band before people use the term pop punk and they would tour with hardcore bands and then as the scene changed you know they would play with lifetime or they would play with the bouncing souls mm-hmm. and they started to become this different sound so musically to me that's where i attached myself to and then as i mentioned i work with this like reggae um ska kind of band it was like a ska reggae punk band so like my tastes were like weird poppier and then from weston i had real big fish open up for them for a show and i Mm. met the manager of real big fish and we hit it off and again that was like a poppy scene band Mm -hmm. so for me making a lot of these transitions weren't that difficult because I grew up in a scene where, you know, it was like sick of it all and mad ball and those kind of bands. And like, while I respected those bands and I have not a bad word to say about them when H2O came out, who we also booked, I was like, this is pop. Yeah. This is another sound, even though like not to disrespect H2O, but they were like a pop band in the hardcore world. Yep. And I just attached to those sounds that fit me. So I didn't feel like, there was this great transition. I was just excited to find bands that spoke to me. So like I started managing under oath when the changing of times was out Mm. and a friend of mine, a guy named Christian McKnight, who was promoting hardcore hall shows on Long Island at the time was a really good friend of mine. He wanted to manage them and asked me to co-manage to help him. And at that point in time, there was really only one under oath song that I felt kind of spoke to me. And it was, God, why am I forgetting the name of the song? It was like the big song on Changing of Times. But, um, oh, The Sun Sleeps Tonight. Oh, thank God. Yeah. God, I'm glad I remember. <laughs> it's going to be really embarrassed if I didn't remember. Like, the Dallas Taylor. Song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was managing them when Dallas was still in the band. And The Sun Sleeps Tonight was mm. like kind of that transitional song for them. And again, the only song I really loved was The Sun Sleeps Tonight. And my partnership and managing them with my friend Christian, they ended up firing Christian just like he wasn't ready to be a manager yet. He's super successful in the industry now Mm -hmm. as a promoter at Live Nation, but he was just young, didn't have it together yet. But the only song I liked was Sun Sleeps Tonight. And I was talking to the Under Oath guys and they were telling me like, you got to hear what we're writing now. If you hear the new stuff, you're going to love it if you like Sun Sleeps Tonight. So I heard they're only chasing safety. And was like, oh shit, yeah, I love this. And I wasn't managing at the time. Like when Dallas quit, like the whole thing fell apart. And I met with them about managing them when I heard Chasing Safety. And they're like, you've always been our manager, of course, come back. So again, like you talk like these transitions, it's like the poppier sound is what I am attached to. Mm. And again, the scene like evolved to me rather than I evolved to the scene, if that makes any sense. It does. Yeah, I feel like in order to be a good manager, you kind of have to revolve around the scene versus the other way around. Because yeah. then you're always kind of playing a catch up and it you're kind of fighting against yourself in the industry. You know, if you're not adaptive to 
how this scene you know moves and then the other part of it's just obviously what it sounds from like from you it's just being a a music lover you know having you know just a, such a passion in, in the industry and music that you're just it doesn't matter what they're playing if you're passionate about something you're going to be successful <laughs> in it you know definitely it, exactly and to me it just it has to speak to me it has to like hit me right there mm-hmm. and if it does that then then i care like mm-hmm. You know, I look at the early scene from Long Island where I live and, you know, you look at like Taking Back Sunday or Brand New or, you know, Thursday out of Jersey at the time. So many of these bands, their first recordings suck. Yeah. Like, no disrespect <laughs> to them. Like, yeah. love the bands, love those records. But if you go listen to them, the production is not good. Yeah. But there is raw emotion that supersedes everything else. And that's where, like, I listen to music, and that's what I care about. It's that raw emotion that grabs me. Mm-hmm. And if that's there, I don't care what genre it is, how it's recorded. It's just going to work because if it hits you, it's going to hit other people. Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned the uh, "Sun Sleep Tonight" was like your your favorite song because that was the pinnacle song of like my middle school to high school transition you know that was the song i listened to every single day on my way to school <laughs> so it's funny that you also you see the value behind that it's such a great song and i feel like that was the song that kind of put them on the map like you said and then allowed them to be able to transition transition to, to who they are today like it's it's such a pivotal song um yeah it's it's wild and like odd tangent but worth mentioning my 10 year old son is like getting into being a youtuber Mm. and like just makes these videos and finds songs online he somehow found my december from under oath on that same record (laughs) and like put it to like an animation that already existed and he played it for me and i'm like do you know what this is and like (laughs) he had no idea that he was taking like an under oath song and he loves it and he literally turned to me like you see so many idiots on you know the internet say it's like why does an under oath sound like this now yeah <laughs> why did they change i'm like right. you're 10 what is wrong with you why are you this freaking guy yeah 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 just enjoy it for what did. it was i think they did a reissue um not too long ago i feel like they remastered one of those albums we did a reissue of it. It may be remastered. I'm trying to think if it's remastered or not. It might be remastered, but we did a reissue that's shipping in like two weeks. Like it hasn't it hasn't even shipped yet. Wow. Excellent. We did it in a partnership <laughs> with Revolver Magazine that pissed a lot of people off because it has a, um, an NFC chip in it that unlocks uh, um, NFT to prove the... Um, the authenticity of that piece of vinyl just kind of to be like you own like you know so like if you do like numbered vinyl Mm -hmm. it can show you which piece of vinyl you have like i'll show you i have a sample of it i know none of the listeners can see this unfortunately (laughs) but there's like a little spot right on the bottom yeah you put your phone up to this little spot on the bottom of the vinyl and the phone reads that chip and then immediately an NFT pops up in your phone that starts rotating that says like, you have like a record, I think mine's number six. Yeah. It's like you have number six of the pressing and you have like the bronze edition and it just spins around and shows you that you have that, which I think is freaking amazing. That's such a cool But concept. the fan base 
freaked out on us. The band was even upset with me to some degree. And I'm like, look, people just don't understand it. When they get it in their hands, I think they'll get it. Like, you know, we could go on tangents about NFTs and Web3 and Metaverse. Like, <clears throat> I love all those things, but it's all being used incorrectly. Yeah. And that's my chance to be like, here's a correct use of awesome mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. And I think in the future, you may see NFC chips in all kinds of things that link to an NFT so that you can prove online in some kind of scrapbook that you own all these collectibles and prove that it's authentic too. Yeah. Does that work so like that? Okay. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no. So is that like... <clears throat> From an authentic standpoint, like, oh, we don't want to do this. We just want to, like, put the record out. No, the band was like cool with the idea. Like, they like, like, pushing the limits. As I'm sure you can see with Under Oath, we're yeah. always pushing the limits and trying new things. It was, man, the fan base is pissed off. They just, everybody hates NFTs. Why are you doing something with NFTs? Because everyone hates them. And I'm just like, just wait patience yeah sometimes you know the world needs to catch up with you and under Oath's music is a perfect example of that yeah when chasing safety came out there were not many recordings that sounded like that then you literally had a band at one point called chasing safety and you've had so many bands that have copied you know that sound and not to like knock them like music evolves one per you know under Oath completely ripped off refuse <laughs> but they tuck it in a different direction yeah so like it's fine. I'm not knocking the people who innovated and copied, but it happened. And, you know, Under Oath will push the limits again. I'm working on an idea that we may do for when we release new music in the near future, which I'll share on here, but without details. But I want to do something that I'm calling a digital seven inch rather than pressing them, kind of like pressing a limited edition digital version of a seven inch. Nice. That's cool. So I don't want to talk too much more about Under Oath because, you know, as much as I love them, but Sorry. I did have one more question um, in regards sure. to that group. And then we can start going into other things. But um, I know that there was a transition between Aaron and Spencer as a vocalist. What was that like on the behind the scenes side? So there's so many different people who are like, oh, they don't sound this. They didn't sound the same. I'm glad Aaron's back. You know, all this, this and that. Um, what was your thoughts on that? On the transition, like which transition? The transition <laughs> the most of recent Spencer one. being there alone? Uh, yes. Or just Aaron coming back? Uh, the one for Spencer being alone and then Aaron coming back later on. Okay. Got it. Well, you know, Spencer being on his own, obviously there was just no choice. And, you know, it was like, all right, how are we going to continue to do this vocally without him? They brought in Daniel, who's a mm -hmm. sick drummer, but doesn't sing. So that's not going to be the option. And then it was like, all right, well, Tim's actually a pretty good singer. Like, so he will do a lot of Aaron's vocals and then Spencer will sing the parts he can sing, but he can't sing everything. It's just not physically possible. So it was really just like, all right, how are we going to do this? Like there honestly wasn't a lot of question. Like Tim has another band called Carolhood mm -hmm. where he's the lead singer and, you know, like he'll sing a melody on a demo sometimes to be like, this is what I think this should sound like. So the transition really wasn't that difficult and then with Aaron coming back again there there was always kind of a challenge in under oath like I feel like you could almost hear it in the music where mm -hmm. like Aaron wants to be poppier and you know other people in the band want it to be heavier so there was 
always a battle. It's part of one of the many reasons Aaron ended up leaving. I wouldn't say that was a major reason, but it definitely came into play where Aaron felt like his skill set wasn't respected. Mm-hmm. And in reality, I don't think his skill set was really fully respected until sometime later when he rejoined the band again. And, you know, we could do an entire episodic series on why that <laughs> happened. It's not like, you know, it was a very two-way situation. But when he came back again, it was just like, all right, let's like have some of what everybody loved under oath for and let's make sure there's some singing. But on that first record back, there was definitely a little bit of a battle between best friends, like Aaron and Spencer are best friends. And Spencer was now singing like he did on Disambiguation. And Aaron definitely felt like he wasn't in a place to dictate what should happen because he kind of just came back. Mm -hmm. They were gracious enough to allow him to return and he didn't want to be the bad guy. And in the past, he sometimes was the bad guy with how he fought. So while I think Erase Me came out to be a great record, Mm -hmm. I think it could have been a lot greater if there was more of an understanding between everyone mm-hmm. at the time. But, you know, there's there's varying members of the band who think that that's their best record and absolutely love it to members of the band who thinks it's trash. Mm-hmm. And Aaron and Spencer are not the ones who think it's trash, though. Yeah. And, like, that's all even matters. though, like, Aaron didn't get to do what he wanted to do, he also doesn't think it's trash. Yeah. So it's just super interesting how like those things happen yeah absolutely you can definitely like you said tell in their music through their entire career that there was always that that battle like there were some songs that were a little more popular some were more hardcore you know throughout their albums there was always that kind of yin and yang of uh of different types of uh genre you know yeah and i feel like they're just giving a little sneak peek i feel like their next record is gonna have some big hooks if they if they keep following the path that they're on right mm-hmm. now, like the first thing people hear from them will not be one of the things with big hooks. But yeah. after that, I think there's going to like, I just heard a demo that like, I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> they really did a great that's, job. That's all of, I'm going to say on that. Yeah. <laughs> they really did a great job of like standing the test of time. That's always the most impressive thing to me is when a band can just survive and like with something like something I would, I'll, I'll say it's dramatic that that, you know, or drastic that that happened when Aaron left. And I'm sure a lot of people were like, but for Spencer to, to be able to like <clears throat> to, to do his thing and just like make the best out of it and let, you know, even though it might have been different, not what everyone was expecting right away. It's like just to be able to still go tour off the album and, and you know, make make dope stuff. And yeah, yeah. it's just super impressive. I mean, one of the yeah, one of the things that makes Under Earth so great is there's so many different sounds and opinions and like that fight makes great music. Like Spencer just put out a track last week. He has a side project called slow tide mm-hmm. that's like an indie pop like not dancey but like groove kind of like electronic pop indie song a song called Lalo and his band slow tide which you would never in a million years think it's an under oath member and especially the guy who's screaming on all those yeah. tracks so it's just like everyone brings unique things to the table and can do so much more than they typically do in that band which is why you get that like constant like change from them too yep. yeah yeah 
So I wanted to go back a little bit because you were talking about including um, things like NFTs into the industry um, and that people aren't really using it right. Um, for a perspective, somebody who is trying to become a, a manager for an artist, uh, what are some of the things that they could be doing to make sure that they're using these tools the right way? You know, my, my feeling is honestly, unless you're truly passionate about the technology and the space and what it's about, just don't go near it. Mm. And I know that sounds strange, but there's a lot you can do with these things, but you have to embrace it and love it because if you don't, the people who come from that Web3 space aren't going to respect you. It's kind of like, you know, you know, in music, oh, that person's a poser. You're going to get the same thing from the Web3 community. So you have to respect their community and be a part of it. And then you have to be able to, for lack of a better word, sell it to your music community, why it's special. And like, I feel like I, when I was just talking about the Under Oath Vinyl project, I feel like you could tell that I respect it and I understand it. And you need those two pieces. Like I've been making the comparison of a lot of these Web3 technologies to gasoline. And think of gasoline before automobiles existed. Like people would be like, this is garbage. All you could do is just pour it on the ground and light something on fire. Yeah. What, what is the purpose of this? And then you suddenly have an automobile, you put it inside and it can allow a car to drive. NFTs at this point are quite often just gasoline and they just start a fire of debate. But as you find uses for them, they are going to become incredibly useful. Like I said, with limited edition pieces to authenticate it, I think that is a good way. So if you're a young startup and maybe you do that just because you know you're going to be big one day and you want your, you know, anything you make to be authenticated. So that could be a reason to do it. But you really kind of have to find what's important to you around that technology. If you're an amazing visual artist, then you know, it may make more sense to make NFTs and attach music to it and utilize that you know, Web3 design community to kind of win them over on your artist. But I yeah. wouldn't just implement any of these technologies because it's new and you should do it. And to be honest, I feel the same way about TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest or Twitter. It's like you, you, you should use the platforms that speak to you, that allow you to have an honest voice. Mm -hmm. And yep. that's what's so important. Like, you know, there, there's some artists who are incredibly into design. And if you are, maybe having a Pinterest board around your band makes sense to show off design that you love. You know, very few artists are doing something like that, but there's no reason why an artist couldn't use a platform like Pinterest. Mm -hmm. And it, it just really comes down to finding what speaks to your voice and then building a community around that. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. I feel like there's still um, a large amount of bands that are trying to be on every platform and manage every platform. And when you're doing that by yourself as just, you know, somebody who's in the band, it becomes exhausting. And then you start losing quality uh, because you're trying to be on Instagram, Facebook, you know, TikTok, Pinterest, all these things. And it sounds like you really just have to find what works for you 
what works for your audience, and then you stick with that. And everything else will kind of come with the success from that one platform. Do you agree with that? I do, but I feel like you need to have at least some minimal presence on some of the core platforms regardless. You don't need to overdo it, but you know, like make sure that your music is accessible to be tagged on some of these platforms. Like if you have the opportunity to upload your music there, make sure it's uploaded there. You know, try to build some kind of community everywhere. Maybe that's not going to be your core one that you focus on, but like like with Under Oath, we're not a TikTok band per se. I don't think anyone would accuse us of being one, but we have some TikToks. And if we think of something that's like interesting, like we did a TikTok at one time, it's like what it sounds like on stage versus what it sounds like in the audience. Just like little things like that where people think, oh, I want to be on stage and really experience the show. It's like, no, it sounds like crap up there. Yeah, it does. And just like little things like that where like, oh, that would be funny. People, you know, don't realize that. Like, well, but we're not going out of our way to be a TikTok band. Mm -hmm. But to have a couple of pieces there, it then helps people to find you, if nothing else, and tag you if they're posting about something else. Mm -hmm. It's really funny that you mentioned people wanting to get as close as possible to the stage because a perfect example is that is Red Rocks. A lot of people, you know, go to Red Rocks and try to get closer to the stage. And this is just, you know, this particular example is just because of the way that Red Rocks is shaped. But the best sound is in the back. And it's usually that way for a lot of different uh, performances because you're the way that the, the speaker output is coming out, it's designed that way. You know, getting that close to the speaker, you're uh, going to lose um, hearing, which, you know, I'm accustomed to yeah, that. It's <laughs> uh, and it's not going to sound nearly That's why you need these everywhere. Earplugs. Yeah, you know what? Mm-hmm. I was, you know, one of those rebellious kids that didn't, like, I don't need earplugs. I'm fine, you know. Um, now that I've gotten older, it's like, I, I wear earplugs because I wanted to protect what little hearing I have left, but yeah. So it, yeah, everybody out that. there, get earplugs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off for a second. Tell everyone to get earplugs. And if you think it's going to ruin the sound and you go to a ton of shows, you can get custom made earplugs for about a hundred bucks and get an ear doctor to mold them for like 50 or 60 bucks. And a lot of money, but if you're spending thousands of dollars a year or every few years going to shows, mm-hmm. you can have perfect hearing years later. Protect and, you know, that hearing. Definitely a benefit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was actually just going to segue because you were talking about uh, TikTok and uh, one of the big things right now is bands blowing up on TikTok. Uh, do you feel like that's that's a good way to kind of get out there or is it still as organic as playing as many shows as possible? You know, that's a really great question. I'm old school and I'm always going to say play shows. But that said, if you understand how to harness the power of a platform and can successfully do it, take advantage of it. But if you feel like you're chasing your tail and you don't know what you're doing, don't waste your time there. Just have a presence, be there. At the end of the day, artists are still developing from being on the road. You do need, you know, these other aspects. But if you're a great live band, it still can eventually come to you. You know, a great example, look at Sleep Token, mm-hmm. who over the last couple of weeks has become massive on TikTok, which I don't even understand what happened. I haven't <laughs> had time to fully analyze and understand it. Right. But they 
were already doing really well. Like I had somebody in the last week or so say, do you know about Sleep Token? I'm like, yeah, they're a cool band. They're all right. Like I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a hater. But like they've been around. They're doing well. And they're like, no, they're massive. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And like I start doing my research. I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. This band just blew up massive. But they were doing the work already. So it can just happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if you allow it to happen, that's great. And if you can, you know, artificially make it happen, great. But so few acts have successfully artificially made these things happen on any platform once the platform has gotten robust. The era to do it is in the earliest of days. Like the early days of Vine Mm -hmm. created Vine superstars. The late days of Vine, you didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, YouTube is still one of the platforms where new people can blow up there, but it's harder and harder. The people who did it in the early days have a massive advantage. Break the Gate podcast is brought to you by Puff Tough. Puff Tough is a Wisconsin-based, Canada's-friendly clothing brand, and I can't tell you how unbelievably cool the Puff Tough merchandise are. They are seriously so dope. You can get high-quality, unbleached, organic hemp rolling papers, which is the same recipe as raw and i'll tell you their christmas themed merch is absolutely insane i mean look at this sweater hit them up on facebook or instagram and get 15 percent off of any of their items by using the code btg yep absolutely yeah um yeah there's i feel like there's less bands now oh what's that you can you can finish chris no, no, no. Sorry. Go ahead. I I get on tangents sometimes and I just get really passionate about the conversation, but please go ahead, Mario. What were you going to say? So obviously, you know, the industry is always changing. I feel like, um, especially with, with new trends and, and social platforms and whatnot. Um, so with addressing your bands and whatnot, are you, are you pretty much looking at the big picture of them and, and thinking, okay, what are they best at? Or are you, do you find yourself trying to push for these things like hey guys we should try doing tiktok we should try doing these sorts of things you know what i mean which is probably another loaded question but yeah no i and i do to some degree and some of it is just like how are we going to find our path and you know like chris dudley from under oath has been really good with tiktok he's just really good with embracing new technology So I've kind of asked him to do some things from time to time because he likes to play around and tease with it. So we've done things like that. Like we're doing a really cool meet and greet on the upcoming Under Oath tour where rather than playing songs like most people do, like, you know, a private listening session, we're doing a demo listening session where people could hear demos of classic songs as well as new songs that they're working on right now that haven't been released yet in this meet and greet. And he made an amazing TikTok showing that story. And I asked him to make a video on it. And then he ended up making what's really a TikTok. And if you go to their TikTok, you could see it. And like, it starts off with like a headline on the top. It says, does under, I mean, do under oath songs suck? And then he plays a version of a song that sounds like shit. And then he's like, this is why they don't suck. And then he plays the new version, like the final version. And just like, utilizing it in a cool way genius so like that stuff if you can find it again it's 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 gotta speak to you but Mm -hmm. you know like there's been other things where the band pushed me when you had the nft boom like 
a year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever it was, you know, just after COVID ended, so probably a year ago. And, um, or not that it ended if we're one of those folks, you know, (laughs) it's still real. It's going to be a disease forever, blah, blah, blah. I respect disease and science. But um, we're having this conversation where, you know, a couple of members like, why aren't we doing things with NFTs? Like, why are you behind the curve? Why aren't you embracing this? We need to be here. And I was just like, most of this is bullshit. We need to embrace the technology in a unique fashion. And I was like, here's an idea that, you know, if you want to do this, this is how I would do NFTs. Rather than selling them, I would do a show where we give everyone in the audience a free NFT at the, at the show. And then we and give it to the fan based on location and airdrop them a brand new song that no one else has. And then let all those fans decide what they want to do with it. If the fans want to resell it to someone else for a hundred bucks, they're allowed. And we're going to make X percent of the money from each time the fans resell it to trade it with each other. And in a perfect world, the fans incentivize to not leak it because they're financially compensated Mm -hmm. to not leak it. Mm -hmm. So, so like I was like, if we're going to do something with NFTs, that's the kind of thing I do. I don't want to sell an overpriced JPEG. I think that's exploiting your fan base. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to say that they wanted to exploit their fan base, but it's understanding new technology and how to embrace it and finding those paths. The airdropping thing is such an underused tactic, for lack of a better word, at a show, because 80% of people have an iPhone. And it's such a cool opportunity to be able to interact with your fans that isn't invasive that you could just airdrop some type of uh, content like you're just saying and they feel like they have something that they got at that particular show or that they could carry with there's not enough people who are using those technologies and you know for their advantage and they should be yeah mario what do you got you got something cooking (laughs) yeah it's just um no i'm just thinking it's that's a genius idea because being a musician like now it's we're not we're not that special right like years ago it was like oh you're in a band you play music it's like now almost everyone in their mom is 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 a band or a producer my 10 year old has a show after this yeah. right so yeah so like especially being 33 now it's like you know i'm old school too i'm from the myspace days of handing out flyers and being able to book those shows that were just listed there now it's like how can we create value differently get people involved leverage our brand and ourselves and our music without just being like oh we're a band give a shit about us you know what i mean it's like you got to create that value so hearing something like that is is incredibly refreshing because you're getting people involved and and you're 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 giving back and 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 giving them value at the same time and and doing something for your for yourself business-wise so yeah that's really incredible my whole feeling is push the limits, try new things. Yep. Just think about the user experience while doing that so that you're never exploiting your fans, yep. but try new things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the aspect of giving back to, um, this is unrelated to NFTs, but um, part of the conversation Kevin and I were having was bands getting donations at shows. You know, there was a local band out of um, Florida, Illuminate Me, who started doing like dog food. You know, you come to your show, bring your dog food and you get this in exchange for that. You know, stuff like that is such a, is a good way that, a good way to kind of keep people like, you know, 
come to your shows, give back to the community, show that you're just not the normal band that just shows up, plays their set and leaves, you know, things like this is like what stands you, makes you stand out. Like, you know, getting, you know, uh, doing the, uh, airdropping or, you know, NFTs or doing donations for charities, stuff like that is so important to staying relevant and, you know, giving back as well. Yeah. I mean, you just got to find what's important to you. Like just hearing what you were saying, it's like, just like gave me an idea. Like I hear those Bombas commercials all the time where it's like, we give out socks to homeless shelters. Yeah, It's like, imagine that you're sure like bring socks. We're going to give them to a homeless shelter. Yes. You know, the, the morning after the show and we're going to pick three fans to come with us, the people who donate the most Yeah, and we'll all go together and That's then post cool it on idea. social media, make a story of it. Like, those are the thing like you have to like really do something like I met there's a booking agent named Dave Shapiro oh, I know. Yep. and I met him years ago when he was the drummer in a band called Count the Stars mm-hmm. and I remember meeting him and just being like dude if your band doesn't make it you're going to be successful in this business and I literally told it to him to his face yeah. and he told me like when they used to get to a new town when they were on the road they would go to the mall meet people who they thought would like their band get their phone numbers, add them to a mailing list, text them the next time they were coming to town to tell them they were coming. And they like actually worked in each mm-hmm. town to find people who could like their band. And did that work? I have no fucking idea. Yeah. <laughs> but it taught him how to market his band. It taught him how to interact. It taught him how to be better at everything he needs to do to be successful in his career. And maybe that band just wasn't good enough to break. And if they were, it would have happened because of the work he was doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So on the topic of um, bands doing things to make them stand out, what are some of the things as a manager that you should look at for taking new artists in as a client? The biggest thing that I look for when I'm taking on a new client is how much they want to work how much they've worked already, how much they will work as the business scales up. Of all the bands I've managed, every single one that's successful and had the longer the success is all based on hands-on operation of the business. And I want people who want to be hands-on. I had a call with a band last week about potentially managing them, bigger size band in the scene, And like, my vibe was like, I don't know that they want to do the work anymore. And I may be reading it wrong. It's, it's hard to tell. So like, if they're listening, and they hear this, no judgment, but like, my take was that they don't want to work so hard themselves anymore. They want to just write the songs. And that's it. Mm. And there's so much more to it than just writing the songs. And you, you need to operate like a business. I mean, look at the Rolling Stones who have been doing this for, you know, I think 60 years now. Those guys are as old as time and they still completely run this like a business. Mick Jagger is a brilliant businessman who is worrying about the deals. And like a friend of mine runs the merch company that does their merch. And he has had conversations with Mick. Like he just started there fairly recently and he's had conversations with Mick multiple times about their merch. I can tell you from bands that I'm friendly with, how many of them have never spoken to anyone from their merch company ever. Mm. And that's the thing that you need is the band who is involved in the business. They look at the manager as a business partner. 
Like the way I describe a band manager is the CEO of a corporation and the band or the board of directors of that corporation. And the board of directors are there to create initiatives, to give some direction, and then allow the CEO to run the business. Mm. And what happens with a lot of bands is they stop caring about the direction of the business and they just care about the songs. And to say that, oh, nowadays, like music's just not the same, you know, I'll say, fuck you. Look at Mick Jagger, mm-hmm. who came out of business school and was doing it 60 years ago and arguably the most successful rock band of all time. Right. Absolutely. Do That's you amazing. think, sorry, um, I thought you were going to say something, Mario. I'm trying not to interrupt you now. <laughs> so now I'm over trying. <laughs> Good. Um, do you think, um, I mean, there's like the aspect of like Spotify numbers being like, uh, the kind of like uh, giveaway saying that, a, oh, an artist is doing well, you know, in terms of like if somebody was trying to be a manager, you know, is that something that they should be looking at um, as a kind of a, a pinnacle um, and then everything else, you know, uh, or is there kind of just you just kind of have to take it for individual bands and to see whatever they're good at? Or do you think Spotify is really I, it? I mean, Spotify is a huge piece of the puzzle. But it is not everything. I mean, you can be a band that just makes money selling vinyl for the most part. Like, mm-hmm. I think you need to be on all the DSPs. And for listeners, DSP is digital service provider, Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, you know, whatever, however you consume music. You have to be on those platforms to have real, true, you know, global success. Every artist has given in and eventually joined the party. You just need to be there. But that doesn't mean it's going to be your number one revenue driver. Mm -hmm. You can do vinyl drops regularly. You can do, you know, like make your money in merch. Like for the most part, like over the last decade, I've noticed all these people really angry that they're not making money from Spotify and how it's Mm -hmm. a corrupt system, blah, blah, blah. You could hear every argument. But now tell me how many bands the 10 years before that were complaining that they didn't make any money from their record deal and their record label was evil and they never saw any royalties and the only way they made money was from merchant shows. Mm -hmm. The paradigm just shifted. It's the same system and you have to make your money from playing shows and merch and at scale, you do make money in Spotify and at scale in the era before Spotify, you were making money from royalties. 90 something percent of the artists were never seeing royalties before and probably more are seeing them now because more independent artists can upload music themselves. 99% of them are failing, but that 1% is a much larger pool. You know, you're talking about a much bigger cake that that 1% is coming out of that are actually making royalties who are independent. So there's, there, there are more people making money because of this new system. It's just everybody thinks they deserve to win. We've had, you know, when everybody gets a trophy generation and people feel they deserve to win. And I want everyone to win, but nobody was ever winning. If you go back a hundred years ago in music or 50 years ago or 10 years ago or now, mm-hmm. unfortunately, only the top 0.001% succeed. And that part hasn't changed. Just the access has gotten easier, which has more disappointed people. Yeah. Hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's true. What are some of the other things that you've learned over the years of being um, in the industry um, that you think uh, somebody would have value to ha- uh, the information would be value to somebody who would be a manager for a band? You know, one thing that I'm passionate about that, you know, a lot of people may not follow, but it's a couple things and it's basic common sense, but (laughs) be honest, be respectful to the person at the bottom of the ladder and the top of the ladder. I am going to talk to both of you with equal respect. You know, I may give the person at the top of the ladder more time because they can open doors to me that I need. But I'm also going to talk to the person at the bottom of the ladder just as much. You know, perfect example. I don't know Chris and Mario from a hole in the wall. They hit me up. I said, they're doing something cool to educate people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give them and their listeners the time of day because I think they're doing something special that's important. And I want to give my knowledge back to the next generation. And when I do that, that next generation has countless times seen me and helped me from what I've done. I've had countless people come up to me and thank me for things that I've done where like, I'm embarrassed to say, but I don't remember any part of that interaction, Mm -hmm. but it was important to them. And what it comes down to is giving people time and respect and empowering them to be great. And they'll be there for you down the line. And if they're not, so what? Fuck them. Mm -hmm. You know, it it doesn't matter. The the majority are going to be good people. And the other piece of that that I would say is be honest. Like it's, you know, this is showbiz, you know, we're about smoke and mirrors. That's okay. Smoke and mirrors is fine, but don't flat out lie to me. And I have a great example with this. And I won't mention the band's name because no one even knows who they are anymore anyway. <laughs> and I don't remember. But this band came to me years ago who was asking for advice. I was giving the kid advice. He was like a nice guy. I was, didn't love his music, but it was okay. I was just friendly with this guy. And one day, like, he starts telling me that CAA is going to sign his band. Like, that's awesome. And he name drops the agent who's going to sign them, who's a friend of mine. And I shoot a note to the guy. I'm like, hey, you know, I've been friends with this band for a while. They told me you're going to pick them up. That's cool. And he's like, no, they've been messaging me and telling me that you're picking them up. (laughs) And then, like, I said something to the guy. And he's like, why are you sabotaging me and all this stuff? I'm like, dude. Just don't fucking lie. If you told me that you've become friends with this agent and you're talking to him, I would respect you. That's that's good. That's, you know, as I said earlier in our conversation, learn the business, learn how to, you know, help grow your business. He was doing all those things, but he was lying. Mm-hmm. And once you're a liar, fuck you. I am not doing business with you. And yep. I didn't think his music was good enough and it didn't really hit me. So it didn't matter. But I wouldn't have wanted to work with him anyway because he's a liar. Mm-hmm. So like that's just a huge, huge thing that I, you know, I feel really strongly about. And it's common sense. You know, yeah. it's like return every phone call and email. Like it's it's not hard. And I'll I'll be honest, as I've gotten into my about 50-year-old range, there are a few emails I don't respond to, but they usually have like a subject line of fuck butt and then i get into the what? email it's like i got your attention my fucking band rules oh and then God. like there isn't even an ask you know oh like my it's God. like literally like <laughs> and i do get things like that where i'm like you didn't even ask me for something like, right sorry but like you were sent an offensive title and if, if they said that subject and like i got your attention and then had an amazing story that grabbed yeah. my attention 
good for you for like the offensive, you know, subject line. I'm not sure. truly offended, but like, right. just don't be an idiot. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> Fake it till you make it does not work. And I don't know whoever said yeah. that, but I myself have like had certain relationships where I'm like, oh, you lied about that? What about that? Well, that's weird. Like, talk about, uh, you know, I'm not even that deep in the industry as, as you are but it's like it's 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 shady and it's how do you how do you trust anyone it like in in milwaukee a small city those sorts of things have caused this scarcity mindset where we could be doing so much more so much better we could have a music community but no one can work with each other and everyone has this scarcity mindset because shady business mm-hmm. but that happened on long island back in the day there wasn't a community and none of the bands broke all the bands started becoming friends, like a bunch of friends started music and being successful and pulling each other up. And that's how you had that big Long Island scene for a minute. But I do want to say one thing on fake it like you make it. I believe in fake it like you make it if done correctly. It's not sure. lying. Yep. It's where I use the term smoke and mirrors. Yep. Like find a band to open up for you that is almost as big as you, but isn't as good as business. And by having them open up for you when maybe they should have been the co-headliner and making your show appear bigger where more people come and then make sure you do that the next time with another band. And again, not exploiting people, not taking advantage of people, Mm -hmm. paying them fairly, but building an impression that you're more important than you are. That I would call fake it like you make it also, but not lying to make it. Right. We just had um, a conversation with Ricky from Ice Nine Kills, who is such a sweetheart. Uh, He's a really, really nice guy. And that was one of the things that stood out about him. Uh, He he was talking about how you don't necessarily need to be a dick in in the music industry to get through. You don't need to be the guy who's just trying to be the sleazy salesman. You know, you can also be a good person and do well in the music industry. And I feel like that has a, a lot of value. You know, I mean. Yes, smoke and mirrors is is a good thing too, but the point is don't try to seem like you're screwing over anybody by basically just because you wanted to get somewhere. Exactly. And eventually you lose your own clients over that stuff too. I feel like once a liar, always a liar. If you lie for your client, eventually they lose trust for you too because they don't know like what you're going to lie about because you're just not a trustworthy person and you're like, I'm proud to say that my two biggest clients, the starting line and under oath, I'm over 20 years with the starting line and coming on 20 years with under oath rather soon. And, you know, we've been together forever and, you know, like at some point they could fire me. Like I could get complacent and they don't think I'm doing a good job and like that will suck, but I will know that I outlasted almost anyone else in managing any band Mm -hmm. in any genre so like i'm proud of just being able to have that type of trusting relationship you know like i was just talking to aaron gillespie from under oath the other day and he was laughing but talking about how i taught him it's like you don't keep 10 cents like there was one time i think i gave him back 40 cents for something (laughs) and it's like it's not that like I care about the 40 cents one way or another, but it's like, you just do the right thing. It's not hard. So if you could steal 40 cents, then you could steal $40. Mm -hmm. You could steal $40. Then maybe you could steal $40,000. And it's just, you know, it's just keeping the paperwork right and doing it right. It's, it's not, or maybe it is hard sometimes, but it's just, it's right. And, you know, just, 
just do that. Like, I just don't feel comfortable taking a dime that isn't my dime. Right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what are some of the other unspoken rules of the industry in terms of management? Is there something that like, you know, so like, I mean, this is kind of a poor example, but with wrestling, you know, wrestling has unspoken rules of, of the ring. You know, if you come in as a guest wrestler, you're supposed to be doing certain things that you just are supposed to know, you know, before going into the ring. Um, what is, is there anything like that in the management realm with working with, you know, artists, labels, agents? You know, the, the artist is the boss. It's their business, not yours, would definitely be a good one. And, you know, I feel like, you know, some managers manage every artist the same way. And you need to manage each act based on how they want to be managed and how they want to be treated. And, you know, like you may have an artist that just wants to, you know, like I'll give an example, like, you know, Maybe one band doesn't want any guests backstage or standing on the stage at their shows. Another band wants that party atmosphere on the stage. Both are fine. And, you know, that's like one that doesn't have major repercussions for the most part either way. But there's, there's some like managers and agents who are just like, like kick everyone off the stage and they're like, nope, this is my way. And it's like, just do what the artist wants, what they're comfortable with. But there may be a reason where you're like, you know, you're a serious band and you look ridiculous with all these people on stage. Here's some reasons why you shouldn't do that. And that's that's OK, too. But, you know, that's a very unimportant example. But it's just very important to understand that it's the artist's business and you're helping to guide them to run their business the way they want to. And you've got to respect their decisions, even when they're wrong decisions. Like I've had to make wrong decisions for bands and it mm -hmm. annoys me. And I may remind them of it from time to time, <laughs> but I won't be an asshole about it. You know, you can't say hold you so, but like you can remind them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I have one more question and then we can wrap it up here. Um, unless Mario has anything else, but the, the biggest question, I guess, is the pinnacle question of this entire episode is uh, if you wanted to be an artist manager, what are some of the ways that you could start? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I'm going to give two completely different answers. Okay. <laughs> so my first answer is how I personally believe it to be. And I believe, as I said, the, the manager is the CEO of a corporation. And if you go work for a corporation, you don't usually come in first as the CEO, unless you've maybe had 30 years of experience or 20, you know, like whatever in music, mm -hmm. definitely less than that. But, you know, you have experience to come in as a CEO and your first job should not necessarily be the head of the company. You should learn the ropes and that could be spending five years in a van or a year in a van working at a booking agency for years, you know, in my, my transition. So it's building a knowledge base first on the areas of the business, recorded music, publishing, live, merchandise. You need to know these areas before you can run the company. But to completely contradict myself, manager is one of the only jobs in the music industry that has zero barrier of entry you can just walk into a room and say anything to anyone and convince them that you're a manager and pull it off. And people can and have successfully pulled that off as well. <laughs> so 
you know, you, you could follow my feelings or you could do what you like. And, you know, my advice would be probably try to find some hybrid between the two because you should have some domain knowledge and at an absolute minimum, read a couple of books on the business. Like there's a book by Donald Passman. Um, it's called like this music business or like whatever it is. The Donald Passman music biz book is the most important book you could read about the industry and listen to podcasts <laughs> like this one. And you know, like I still listen to podcast interviews with successful executives this morning, right before this, um, this podcast interview, I was listening to an interview with um, Michael Ovitz, who was the founder of CAA, mm -hmm. one of the biggest booking agencies in the world and telling his story of how he did that. And, you know, like, his story is very different, but it's not that far off. And I just study business, both music business and startup culture in general as well, and try to learn from others. And yeah, one final bit of wisdom I'll give is no matter how long you're doing this, whatever you're doing, you're not a fucking expert mm -hmm. and don't ever assume you're an expert and always get advice from others and always research because this business, just as any other business is constantly changing and we all kind of need to work off of each other to learn mm -hmm. and I'll be learning into the moment I die. Yes. Yeah. We were, uh, Sierra, we were having that conversation on the podcast that was one of the things that she had mentioned was like that was the biggest thing she learned as a as a manager was you're every day you're going to be learning something and if you're not figure out why you're not learning something and and and, and learn something basically <laughs> is what she said yeah, if you, yeah i couldn't agree more with that if you're not learning anything anymore then you're the problem yep absolutely you're stagnant or plateau yeah <laughs> Cool, I was man. gonna quote a Taylor Swift lyric, but I'll refrain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I want to know. Yeah, I want to. I was Taylor yeah, Swift. No. No, it was that it's me. I'm the problem. Whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're on your own, kid. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Props to her, by the way, for Hell just yeah. like you can you can definitely hear the organicness and the authenticity now in her new stuff that she wasn't able to do before because of labels and whatnot but yeah that's amazing yeah and you know what this is the thing taylor swift is a brilliant individual i don't know and powerful and strong and all these great things i don't know that it's the industry that didn't let her do what she's doing now I feel like she knew the industry that she's in, mm -hmm. knows the game she needs to play to succeed in it, yeah. and may not like the game, but needed to get to a point where she could change the game. And if she wow. didn't play the game, she wouldn't have the ability to change it later. And mm -hmm. I, I, I want to give her more credit than you were, not to knock you, yeah. but I think by choice, she did things that maybe weren't exact. And maybe she actually wanted to be there too. But regardless, I've found in my career quite often it's the artist who wants to do the thing that people are criticizing other people of influencing, and mm -hmm. they go to those people for it. You know, like I heard it about Under Oath with their last record, or their two records ago with Erase Me, where Matt Squire made their record. They made it with Matt Squire because they wanted that record. They did. Matt Squire did not make a record that they came out and go, "What did he do to us?" Yeah. Like they loved every minute while they were making that record and were making what they wanted to do. 
the industry didn't try to change them. That was where they felt they belonged in that moment. And that's what they made. And so many artists, that's the story. And people kind of create a new narrative around it. Yeah. And actually that field, another question I have, and then we'll wrap it up. I promise. Uh, <laughs> uh, what uh, are some cool. of the uh, things that you wish that you could change in the industry right now? Cause I know it, it's ever evolving. There's always, you know, debates on why music, the industry should be this way and not that way. What are some of the things that you would personally change? Well, this is for another podcast conversation completely. Yeah. And probably <laughs> we'll have to have another one. Series, then. <laughs> but um, yeah, but the structure of the ticketing business mm. it is completely broken and ticket scalpers have exploited the hate of Ticketmaster. While Ticketmaster may not be perfect, there's lots of problems. People don't understand how Ticketmaster works. Mm-hmm. They see a ticket fee from Ticketmaster. They assume that money is actually going to Ticketmaster and not the promoter and the venue and other people in that service fee. And Through that, the ticket scalpers have had immense luck lobbying governments, both locally and federally, to change laws that actually hurt fans and benefit scalpers. And I just did an analysis for a manager the other day of an act that was playing Madison Square Garden and found that a show that's happening later this year, there was a $350,000 profit for ticket scalpers. Holy off the sale shit. of tickets for that show on just one platform, StubHub. Like not oh even looking God. at the other, like SeatGeek, which sells a lot, or yeah. Vi- Viagogo or any of the others. So scalpers are making tremendous amounts of money on shows and are getting incredibly powerful. And they use that power to create lobbying groups that they call things like the Fan Freedom Project or Fans First. And these are all organizations that claim to be fighting for the fans that are actually fighting for scalpers to create new laws that harm fans and artists and allow them to make more money. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that I am on a passionate fight about right now. And if there's something I want to change, it's absolutely that. Wow. Yeah. And wow. it's crazy too, because even just, even just the people who are not ticket scalpers, but people who say they um, have tickets too. I mean, this may or may not be related, but I can't tell you how many times I'll see people post on an event that's either sold out or, you know, uh, close to being sold out and says, Hey, I have two tickets available for you. If you, if you need any, and then, you know, you do your normal investigation. We're like going to their Facebook page and you see like, they've got extensive history on their Facebook page, but they end up actually being a scam. You know, they're getting people are getting more and more creative in terms of trying to sell tickets as either a, a ticket scalper, scalper or somebody who doesn't even have the tickets to begin with. And it's just trying to make a quick buck off of somebody. It's 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 sad. You know, it, it I I wish we were at a point in where we could trust the source that we're getting from and people know that they're getting value out of the tickets that they're purchasing, you know. Yeah, you can see now anytime any artist posts on Facebook or Instagram that they have tickets on sale, there are bots that instantly sniff out those posts mm-hmm. and link to scams. It's completely automated. They're not even doing the work themselves. The bots post, I have tickets. Because like I've posted things where like it'll literally be like, tickets go on sale next week. And because the word tickets and on sale are in the same post, the bots aren't sophisticated enough. 
And they're like, I have two to sell. I can't go anymore. Mm. Didn't even put them on sale yet. And that is rampant too. And I don't know for sure, but I assume those are different scam artists than scalpers. Mm -hmm. I think it's two different scams, but there is a lot wrong in ticketing. Yeah. And, you know, on the ticketing front, like I just posted something on Instagram stories today. I was, or yesterday, I should say, I was looking to take my son to Monster Jam, like the Monster Truck nice. Show. And the tickets were $30 and $53.50 with service fees. Whoa. So $23.50 service fee, which I did the math and it came out to a 78% service fee on that ticket. Whoa. And, which is a problem and our business is broken and you know most people go fuck ticketmaster how dare they take so much but it's not really ticketmaster taking the majority of that money it's you know as i mentioned before it could be the venue it's the promoter there's local taxes which are taxes there's credit card processing fees but all this money is taken out of a ticket and nobody knows where or why it's happening. And you're going to see over the next year some more transparency around ticket pricing. I don't know how how good this will be because you have organizations like the National Talent Organization, which I'm a part of, as well as the Ticket Scalper Lobby, both lobbying government right now on this path. And the Ticket Scalper Lobby, you'll hear them say things like, we need more transparency in tickets. Promoters should say how many tickets are left on any show that are mm -hmm. on sale or how many are held back and not put on sale initially. And the scalpers want to know how many tickets are held back because it helps them better price their tickets. They don't want to get creamed because the artist keeps 20% of the tickets and drops them later to sink the market on the secondary for tickets. Mm, okay. And they're fighting for that. They claim that it's in the fans' best interest to know how many tickets are left. And I understand why a fan might want to know that, but the way the current laws and system works, it benefits the scalper to be able to know how to make more money to rip off the artist. And the scalper, you know, in that example I gave of a show coming up at Madison Square Garden where they're making hundreds of thousands on that one show, That'll be similar money to what the artist makes and the artist and the promoter and everyone in that they're using that money to support music, to write more music, to put on more shows, mm -hmm. to help develop other artists, the scalpers, they're just putting that money in their pocket and ripping people off. Yeah. So just that is what I would change. Yeah. Wow. What a really good way to end the podcast. That was <laughs> a lot of good information. Um, Randy, thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I really appreciate it. You provide a lot of good information. Uh, I'd love to have you on again at some point in the future, you know, and we can talk more about some of the other things that we conversated that could provide some, you know, maybe a full yeah. episode on, um, Mario, do you got anything you wanted to say before? No, I just wanted to say thank you for giving this the time of day. Um, it's, it's really cool to meet you as far as just being, you know, those bands were a huge influence on me, us, like as a musician mm -hmm. and, and just growing up. And it's like to meet someone who is part of putting those things in place and managing those talents is, is wild. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I actually have a foot tattoo of Under Us logo. So it's been a it's been a huge part <laughs> oh, of me for nice. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Which logo? Yeah, uh, it's the one the circle the slash through it. Okay. Yeah. There's so many. It's funny. Like I have 
I don't know if you guys can see this. Your listeners definitely can't. But yeah. I have two different gold records on my wall. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, each I can one has it. a different logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One has a lowercase logo, and then it was uppercase. Like we could do a whole another episode on branding and yeah, logos. that would be great. Yeah, we could totally do How that. To tell that story. Like, yeah, that's a super interesting thing in itself. Like. I don't know if you noticed, but Under Oath's current record has a U slash rather than an O slash. Yep. Like just little pieces, you know, things change and evolve. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, um, are you accessible on socials? You know, where can people find you? Any contact? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Find me on LinkedIn, as strange as that may sound. I post amazing like conversations that I've hosted on LinkedIn, especially on the ticket topic recently. You can see real players in the music industry chiming in. Like Mm -hmm. I'll have the head of music and the head of the Ticket Scalpers Association and myself and others all debating sometimes on a post. So like that I highly recommend. Like it's more businessy, but you can find me there at just Randy Nichols on LinkedIn. And perfect. Um sorry, I'm getting a phone call. All right. Sorry. sorry. (laughs) No worries. No worries. That was gonna happen. I thought I turned everything off. It's okay. But um (laughs) yeah. But you could find me on Instagram, I think, at Randy Nichols, on um, Twitter, at ForceMM. But find me. If you just Google my name, I'm pretty easily found. But follow me, message me, talk to me. I'm always down to talk trash and talk shop. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, we'd love to have you back on again. You know, we'll keep in touch. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Cool. Awesome. It was great meeting you guys. Yeah, you too, you as well. Take care.